Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is our Halloween show. It's going to be about scary stuff. I just want to mention something that's not on the show. We're going to be talking, partly anyway, about something called folk horror, which is that idea that you go out into the country and it's nice out there in the countryside and it's rural and green. And then it turns out there are pagan cult people there and they kill you. So there's a guy named Thomas Tryon. He was an actor for a while. He's born in Hartford. He's from the family who lent their name to the store Stockpole Moore and Tryon. And he wrote books like that, in particular, one called Harvest Home, which fits exactly in to the folk horror genre and is set in Connecticut. So I don't know if you have nothing else to do. Dig up Harvest Home by Tom Tryon. It is folk horror. All right. Get ready for more scary stuff, but not too scary. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, it's Halloween. So I have this thing I've been thinking about today, which is that I feel like it probably comes up in seances and nobody ever mentions it. But don't you think at some point at seances, the ghosts say, by the way, we never say boo? Like, that's just not something we say. Where did anybody get the idea that ghosts say boo? All right. I just had to get that off my chest. That's not what the show's about. The show's about actually somewhat scary things. Especially, we're going to talk about something called folk horror. You might not know the name, but it's a genre that includes movies like The Wicker Man and, of course, Midsummer. About sort of rural, pagan, scary things. Things that look nice and natural and then turn out to be really horrible and then you get killed. All right, so, spoiler... (laughs) (laughs) All right. And we'll have other stuff, including our producers are going to be endorsing scary things, except for Betsy Kaplan, who's going to endorse apparently something that's not scary, just to be difficult. So among many other things, it is the 40th anniversary of the movie Alien. 
I'm not really exactly sure how you would celebrate that. Apparently by having something burst out of your abdomen. So it's like a party you really only want to have once. Joining us now to talk about that is Roger Luckhurst, a professor in modern and contemporary literature at Birkbeck University of London, the author of the BFI film classics book, Alien. So let's begin where we must begin, which is in 1979. And this movie comes out. First of all, Roger Luckhurst, was it obvious right away that this was going to be some kind of indelible classic? Or was it greeted as so many of these things are with a mixture of positive and negative? Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting reception because the first screenings of it are legendary in that many of the audience were so shocked at what they'd seen because this was so unprecedented that they were running, screaming, they were throwing up, they were just absolutely horrified. So they had, the studio had great kind of hopes for this to be a big shocker. And actually, the initial reviews were quite lukewarm, saying, yeah, it's all right. It's not It's not very intelligent. It's just a big old haunted house in space, not very gripping, no real plot. And you, you kind of read these now and you just think, did you not see the same film? This is, <laughs> this is the beginning of a legend. But that's often what happens with these classic films. Seems dead enough. Well, good. Let's get rid of it. Ripley, for God's sake, this is the first time that we've encountered a species like this. It has to go back. All sorts of tests have to be made. Ash, are you kidding? This thing bled acid. Who knows what it's going to do when it's dead? I think it's safe to assume it isn't a zombie. Dallas, it has to go back. Well, I'd assume it's not burning at stake, but you're the science officer, you're the decision, Ash. I will say that at that time, I was sort of a second-string uh, film critic at a newspaper, and the first-string film critic, who'd seen many, many movies and was not easily flustered or discomfited, came back from the screening of that in, you know, a stricken state and showing considerable pallor even, you know, 30 minutes after mm. the end of the movie. And it, it, that's an interesting thing, too. And, I mean, the following year, another big old haunted house movie, The Shining, was going to come out as well, and that yes. was also going to be kind of timeless. So there isn't anything wrong with that idea. This one, though, I don't think you can really call it a big old haunted house movie. As you've pointed out, it, what it is, is it's on the cusp. It's this kind of liminal movie. It's, it's sort of right on the threshold of several different things. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think what it what it does brilliantly is it's it's like a classic sort of slasher film, isn't it? So, you know, you're counting down, you're introduced to the whole cast, you know that the cast is going to be killed off one by one. So that's quite a conventional sort of plot structure. But the fact that it's happening in this really lived in spaceship is, is absolutely fusing together science fiction with gothic, with a kind of almost like a Cluedo game of, of, of people being killed off one by one. So it's this great kind kind of throwing together of different genres and of course that you know you recognize it but you also recognize that something new is happening and that's what's exciting right and and also i mean before it becomes that that lived in thing before it turns into the shining in space it go, does go to another planet and we are introduced fairly early in the film to one of the things that is going to be iconic and remarkable i've already made a a bad joke about it but we are going to see this kind of male pregnancy this horrible explosive insemination of a human being what's the matter the food ain't that bad baby what's wrong 
And I assume that's one of the things that just sort of pulls it out of any genre. It makes it kind of sui generis, at least at that moment. Yeah, it does. And again, a, a kind of very legendary scene where it was not known by the cast, except John Hurt, who has this thing burst out of him, what was about to happen. So they were all completely genuinely shocked when you see the, the, those reaction shots. They're the reaction shots of, of real people. So that sort of sense of, of horror is important. And I think just that simple twist of making this, I mean, all Gothic films are really about the horror or the fear of pregnancy and of reproduction, uh, the darkness of, uh, of sexuality, all the way back to Frankenstein, say, which is about, you know, this kind of strange male birth, too. And here you just got uh, in the in the decade where feminism comes through a really, really strong lead female figure. But the, the abject is a male who has to give birth and be destroyed in the process of this. So it's very, very iconic. I, I think also there was a way in which popular science fiction had maybe gotten a little bit glib about the idea of going into space. I mean, at this point, Star Trek has been on television for a long time and gone off television. We've had Star Wars, too. And, and, and there's a sense, well, it's going to be fun and there's going to be some swashbuckling and once in a while you get into a jam, but you'll get out of it. And then this was sort of in a whole different thing. And the seriousness of it, you know, from even that those those establishing scenes of they've got to kind of sleep through their journey and wake up and all, all this kind of of this idea that, oh, no, this might not be fun in games. I think that's a little bit of a slap in the face. Yeah, very much so. And very of its time, I think, because this is right at the end of the 70s. So actually, this is not a bright, shiny future of, uh, of really bright, no shadows, lots of electronics, everything works. This is a, <laughs> a falling apart spaceship which has got real uh, people keep about the work what the hours they're putting in are they going to get bonuses oh yeah right i just forgot something man uh before we dock i think we ought to discuss the bonus situation right brett and right. i we think we ought to we deserve full shares right, right baby? you see mr park and i feel that the bonus situation has never been on a an equitable level well you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else gets more than us. It was actually a film made during major strikes happening in England, so that was really reflecting the kind of collapse and, and, and despair of this period. So, yeah, it's a lived-in, used-up, cynical world in which these people have to, have to live, and that's a genuine kind of surprise. This is really the end of that... Uh, the future is always going to be better vision that you were still had a little bit in Star Trek. Yeah, so it's very different. There's a, a lot of ways to kind of frame this from a more scholarly perspective, and you've done that, obviously. I mean, one way to look at it is, and w one way it's been debated endlessly in scholarship is whether it is, you know, a fairly original kind of feminist movie. The, just the fact that, that Ripley prevails, that Ripley is the one who prevails when others fail. And, you know, we were, were years away we're 11 years away from Thelma and Louise. I can't really think of another movie where anybody does what Ripley does. So how does that argument land with you? Well, I think even at the time, it was seen as quite a sort of significant uh, breakthrough to have 
a woman like Sigourney Weaver in that lead role. And they said in the script that Ripley actually wasn't gendered until quite late on. So that sense of it doesn't really matter. And that that's a sort of conception of, I suppose, uh, spaceflight in the future. We're only just now getting women astronauts having their, <laughs> their own kit designed for their physi- physiology. But at this point, they're envisaging a kind of sense of equality here, that actually women and men can work in equal kind of ways. Now, I can take the kind of criticism that actually this is largely a quite limited conception of what women might be able to do in the future or in film. But I think films like this did make a major statement at the end of the 70s. Well, I I think also, I mean, first of all, my career as a broadcaster would not be complete if I did not get to discuss Sigourney Weaver's panties on the air. So I'm going to go there right (laughs) right away. So there was, one of the debates was, well, here she is. She's this incredibly heroic, you know, uh, embodiment of of some kind of Greek warrior, demigod, fighting off this horrible monster. And then at the end, they put her in her underwear, you know, for us to lay our male gazes across, possibly. Although there are different ways of interpreting that. But I, I know that fights have broken out uh, among scholars about this. Like, was Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, very much so. So, you know, you can read that as um, a moment at the end of the film where it suddenly turns into a very conventional damsel in distress gothic moment. So you need to sexualize and objectify the central figure. But it's also quite a kind of conventional way of thinking that only men are watching this performance. And in fact, that's figure of Ripley has become a major kind of focus, say, of of lesbian culture and spectatorship, that this is a, a brilliant kind of moment where you can reappropriate that actually this is a full, fully observed female figure who is both able to be heroic but not lose her sexuality or identity and has this kind of very powerful iconic sexuality. So I think that's the brilliance of the film really is the sense in which you can read it in multiple ways and different audiences can take different things from it. Right. I mean, I think one of those ways in the second movie, we have this another iconic moment. Get away from her, you bitch. But even in the first movie, I think there's a sense that the, there's this weird, impregnating monster. We just we don't know exactly what it is, but it's it's scary. It doesn't not clear whether it's male or female. She has to call upon every resource that she's got to win. But at the end, you know, we're also shown that she's a woman. She's a not scary vagina dentata woman. She's you know she's a woman that we can recognize. And I sort of. I sort of took that sort of gray standard issue underwear to sort of say, yes, this is a woman that we might enjoy knowing as opposed to some incredibly far-fetched, you know, Xena warrior princess. Yeah, I think, I think that's like exactly right. It's part of the sense of it being a kind of a recognizable, a kind of lived-in world where people do kind of bitch away at each other. They've got lots of gripes. So a sort of sense of real kind of tension and anger about it. So throwing in a kind of sense of, of sexuality there is a really good decision, as is 
they decided to remove a sex scene between Ripley and the Captain Dallas, which would have made her precisely the second string, the the damsel who has to step up rather than the central heroic figure. So there's a kind of sequence of really good choices there, I think, that the filmmakers made. Yeah, I hadn't known about that one. Uh, Yes, that's a great choice not to do that because she somehow or other has to be, in quotes, more than. She has to be more than the situation she's in. She's got to be more than the crew she's a part of. She rises above all that. So it doesn't make sense for her to partake of sort of normal daily urges. I just want to ask you uh, about one more thing here. And I think it's much more evident in the second movie. We're talking to Roger Luckhurst, by the way, professor in modern and contemporary literature at Birkbeck University of London, author of the BFI film classics book, Alien. So there's also a kind of post-Vietnam, you can't really trust anybody, including the people that you're nominally working for. And this really gets spelled out, maybe a little bit on the nose in the second movie, where you've got these special forces commandos who don't really understand the mission they're being sent on. You've got Paul Reiser as this real proto-weasel military industrial complex tool. You know, he's got this whole hidden agenda. But it's a little bit there in the first movie, too. They don't quite understand everything that the company may understand. We feel as though we're at the beginnings of major mistrust, even in outer space in the future. Yeah, not only do we have this kind of broken down steampunk ship that's, you know, going through the galaxies, but you really have sort of management you can't necessarily trust either. Right. I think that is very important. And I think the casting of uh, Yafet Koto, who plays one of the working class black guys in the in the film, is really important. We are obligated under such... Oh, but uh, this is a commercial ship, not a rescue ship. Right. <laughs> and it's not my contract to do this kind of duty. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, watch. Man's right. Let's go over the bonus situation. We never talk about the bonus situation. Sorry, can I say something? Let's talk about the bonus situation. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that it's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? Penalty of total forfeiture of shares. Money. You got that? (laughs) Yeah. All right, we're going in. Yeah because he'd just been in Blue Collar, which was a great film about a conspiracy of a management of an auto factory. And he discovers uh, all kinds of corruption. And they actually kill him inside the plant. So they use the factory to kind of kill him off. So Yafet Koto turns up again as this blue collar figure in the future in Alien. And here he is again being kind of screwed over by the bosses. And that's very clear all the way through. It's a very 70s sense you know, this is the end of the industrial mass working class unionized period of, of American and British history. It opens in the same month that Margaret Thatcher got elected and just a few months before Ronald Reagan got elected. So a massive change of culture at that point. And it really captures the kind of uh, cynicism, suspicion of the bosses, a sense of I'm only going to work my hours. I'm only going to work to rule. Uh, do we get a bonus? All of those sorts of questions that that are constantly circulating here. So this is a really, you know, bad feeling kind of sense. And and all of that suspicion about corporations is something that we do associate with the Reagan era with and the beginnings of that sense in which there is 
structural inequality that's beginning to be used as a lever against the working classes. So, yes, and it's another kind of signal of a new kind of, of film that's going to be made in the 1980s. So I have to ask you about one last theory. Now, so it turns out that probably working on, I, I haven't really looked at the dates, but probably working on nearly parallel tracks, we've got this film. And then we've got mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber making a musical about T.S. Eliot poems about cats. And so they're both <laughs> arguably, Roger, a somewhat cat-centric. So there's an argument that at the end of the movie, well, who prevails, who survives? One of the survivors, the, 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 the creature who has survived the death of many humans, the death of a monster that mindlessly wants to destroy humans, the destruction of, of uh, an android who's an artificial, not particularly trustworthy life form. There's a cat named Jonesy. Yeah. So give me your cat theory. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's it's common amongst science fiction critics to observe that nearly always when a cat appears in a story, it's super intelligent. It's much more intelligent than the humans. And you could argue that Jones the cat in Alien is responsible for the death deaths of at least three of the crew by leading them astray. And Ripley very nearly dies at the end by going back for the cat, so almost like exploiting her maternal kind of feelings. And in the beginning of the second film, of course, Jonesy is there still, but only the idiot Ripley is going to go back and fight this thing again. You never see Jones again, who presumably survives and lives a very comfortable life a long way away from this kind of evil monster. So the, there was a brilliant kind of novel written by a film critic called Anne Bilson, who retells Alien from the point of view of the cat and just refers to the humans not as human beings at all, but merely as can openers because that's their only function uh, and in that sort of sense it's wonderful and, and Anne Bilson kind of connects it to what about Blofeld's white cat that he's always stroking maybe actually that cat is the master planner of all the James Bond films too and she develops this whole theory about cats in film that actually are really running the universe which if you're a cat person you kind of know already right there's also a more recent graphic novel called Jonesy Nine Lives on the North Stromo. So, and I think that one is actually published by a uh, cartel of cats. So everybody is correct. They are. They <laughs> I'm are, sure it is. I'm yeah, sure they're it taking. Is. No, really, there's just no question. Now, now that you spell it out that way, I see yeah. that we're just sort of ticking down the last few moments of Homo sapiens dominance, assuming it's even happening. And the cats will be very Absolutely. soon. Will be a feline center. Roger Luckers, you've been so great to join us today. Thanks for telling us so much about Alien. Thanks for having me. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley. Last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I think it might be the first time I've ever said panties on my own show, probably the last as well. After this break, we will look at folk horror through movies like Midsummer and The Wicker Man. Come on, cat. Folk horror, as the name suggests, For example, you know that movie where Peter, Paul, and Mary kill some kids on a field trip? That's folk horror. 
There really isn't a movie like that. But uh, I'll tell you how we're going to set up folk horror. I'll tell you how we're going to explain it. So last week, we have a new dog. And last week, this dog, whose name is Declan, chewed through the seatbelt, the rear seatbelt in my significant other's Volvo. And what we found out was to replace a Volvo seatbelt that's been chewed through by a dog, they actually have to conduct a pagan sacrifice in Sweden. And that's one of the reasons that it takes a long time and it's quite expensive. And that, I don't think they make that clear, in the, crystal clear in the movie, but that's sort of the subtext of the movie Midsummer, which was, of course, a hit this year. And it is in the tradition of folk horror. And here to talk about it is Kyle Anderson, senior editor and film critic for Nerdist, and he joins us via the miracle of Skype. So you wrote about this, and, and Midsummer is part of a tradition, but maybe we should just talk a little bit about the hit that was Midsummer. This kind of, although the director had previously done Hereditary, so we kind of knew that maybe this is going to be an anticipated movie, this is kind of a surprising hit for a, a Swedish folk horror pagan movie. Yeah, it definitely was. And, and it is it was sort of a risk, especially given, you know, kind of how straightforward the the kind of horror of Hereditary was. Having a horror movie set outdoors in the middle of the day, you know, beautiful pastoral landscapes, that doesn't necessarily generally lead to scary things. But the movie, I think, really worked largely because of that, because, you know, in a lot of folk horror, you get the smiling faces of the people who aren't in their mind doing anything wrong. This is just part of their normal kind of rituals and it's only us the westerner or the the kind of quote-unquote more civilized societies that think that this is a horrible like backwoods type of thing but you know it's scary nonetheless and it seemed to have connected with quite a few audiences it's like another world amazing do people just sleep here yeah all the younger ones until we turn 36 and then we move to the laborer's house why 36 well, we think of life like the seasons. So you're a child until you're 18, and that's spring. And then at some point, we all do our pilgrimage, which is between 18 and 36, and that's summer. And then from uh, 36 to 54, we're a working age, which is fall. And then finally, from 54 to 72, you become a mentor. What happens at 72? <laughs> Kyle Anderson, one of the threads that runs through this genre is, as you said, this bucolic beauty, this place that we maybe seek out as a, a world that's better than our own or a way of getting away from the stresses of city life. And, and here there's also this kind of communal aspect to things, this kind of intentional community. And I guess part of it is, as you say, it's the, the contrast between all of that and what lies beneath. But this notion, anyway, that these kind of pre-Christian groups are really after something else. I mean, it's been around for a while. Yeah, it has. And it's it's this kind of, it plays on, I think, Christian kind of fears of the, the quaintness of the pagan or the non-Christian kind of beliefs where sometimes it can seem, oh, this is fun and nice. Look at, you know, look at the, their old timey way of life. But ultimately, you know, it, it is a a way of scaring Christians into being like, you better keep believing. Otherwise, you know, somebody might set fire to you or something like that. It's a a cautionary tale. Initially, that's what kind of folkloric horror, which is kind of what it is. It's based on the old lore of the people who were not as educated, didn't didn't read as well. They were kind of an agrarian people. And we look down on them. We're not we necessarily, but they 
people look down on them and that's that's to their own downfall. Right. And uh, so even, I mean, as you say, these stories go way, way back and uh, a little bit closer to the present. Even Shirley Jackson's uh, famous story, The Lottery, is, is clearly about a world like that, a world where there are mm. agrarian values and things that have to uh, that have to be done usually associated with anxiety about crop cycles and the fertility of the land and stuff like that. And there is that sense. But this genre did experience kind of uh, an intensification in the late 60s and early 70s. The movie that people are most likely to have seen is the movie The Wicker Man, but it was preceded by two others, Witchfinder General and The Blood of Satan's Claw. So tell us what's going on with this little unholy trinity, as some people call these three movies. Yeah, it's really fascinating. In the late 60s in England, where, you know, in other parts of Europe, you were getting, you know, the beginning of like the Jallo movement in in Italy and, uh, you know, in France, they were doing kind of like medical horror um, pictures. But in England, they were kind of throwing back to this this folk traditions. And so the Witchfinder General finds Vincent Price, who was their big star, their big get as as an actual guy, Matthew Hopkins, who is a, a self-appointed witchfinder who would go to different small communities and proclaim people witches and then torture them and burn them at the stake and, you know, do various horrible things and was kind of doing it in with impunity. So even though in the course of that movie, he is searching for the evil of witchcraft, it's actually the evil of man that is is the really terrifying thing. And the fact that people would just like let this happen to their loved ones because, oh, well, this witch finder says that this is a witch. So we have to, you know, he probably knows what he's talking about. You are all of you confessed idolaters. However, these proceedings shall be carried out through due process of law. What law demands, we shall satisfy. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink, we will know that your confessions are false. If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water and hanged by the neck until you are dead. You can't hang me! And the, the movie cycle kind of began doing a lot of very violent depictions of these torture sequences, and it kind of became a kind of exploitation movie because of that. Blood on Satan's Clog kind of goes the other way where it's there is actually kind of a devil at work kind of um, drawing these good young people into his literal claws. Oh God, I prayed I'd never see that again. That's what they call the devil's skin. Let her die, say I. No, sir, she's no witch. Well, let the squire put her in jail. There, at least she'll do no harm. Could we not take pity on her? She's the mark of the devil. No wonder the villagers were afraid of her. It's madness to keep her here. It's sort of kind of a counterculture kind of allegory where it's like the young people are who we should be afraid of kind of around the time the movie came out in, I think, 1970 or 71. So, like, it came out right around the time of the Manson family where people started being afraid of the hippie culture. And so that movie sort of reflected that, but again, was set in the 1600s. And then The Wicker Man is one of the most fascinating movies I have I think I've ever seen, but it's set in, at the time, modern day, 1973, where this police officer goes to a small pagan island that is kind of getting ready for its May Fair or its May Day. Good afternoon, Sergeant Howie. I trust the sight of the young people refreshes you. No, sir. 
It does not refresh me. Oh, I'm sorry. One should always be open to the regenerative influences. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your Lordship is a Justice of the Peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder and conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. Your Lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Religious? With ruined churches? No ministers, no priests, and children dancing naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. And he's searching for a missing girl, and he is an upstanding, very Christian, very conservative police officer who looks down on this entire, you know, society of copulating locals and things like that. And then eventually, you know, spoilers, but it's it's super famous. But like he is to be used as the sacrifice for this island that has been having terrible apple crops for the past several years. So burning him in this giant effigy of a wicker man is supposed to bring that back. And that the horror is, oh, he was always doomed, basically, like there is no saving him. And even as he screams and chants and sings songs to his Christian God, it doesn't do any good. And so those three movies really kind of set up this version of horror, which is folk horror, and, you know, there were quite a few offshoots in in different countries, and a lot of them had to do with witch-finding and stuff like that in the 1600s, but, you know, The Wicker Man kind of has been unmatched almost until Midsummer. Right, although... Apparently, not that I've ever seen any of them, but there were apparently a ton of TV shows, British TV shows, that kind of followed along with this into the late 60s and early 70s. This is something that they really liked a lot. And I do think, you know, I'm a big believer in the notion that horror often feeds off certain anxieties that we have or or asks us questions about our present moment, you know. And if you think about it, these movies of the late 60s, early 70s, they do sort of coincide with this kind of sense of so the suburbanization of life that people were increasingly deciding that to have a little plot of land in the suburbs would be really nice, you know. And so there's this other wilderness, you know, this truly, truly rural wilderness that is still kind of attractive, too. And, and when, like in Wicker Man, it kind of looks fun to live there, you know, until you have to burn somebody. It, it looks kind of nice, you know, and there's these people playing this really cool kind of Celtic sounding folk music all the time. This, uh, you know, kind of rural sounding folk music and copulating, which always looks like it's fun. And and uh, I've never tried it, but, you know, <laughs> and it, it there's a way in which the whole thing seems kind of attractive. And, and I wonder about that, too. You know, the, it was really at a time when so many people had given up r- on rural life. They wanted to live in the suburbs. They wanted to live in the city. And it was also a time when, to your earlier point, people were becoming less and less religious, generally speaking. You know, so the idea of people who really fervently still involved in this very old religion, sitting under the politess of Britain was Albion, you know, the pre-Christian England. That probably was kind of, 
you know, probably played off people's anxieties about giving up on religion. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, reflective of a lot of different things. And, and you know, horror, I think, is at its best when it, you know, kind of like science fiction reflects on the, the time. Like science fiction, of course, shows you a future version that reflects on current day. And in a lot of these folk horror things, it's the, it's the opposite. It's the past. It's, you know, showing you the past to kind of make you grateful for the present or, or want to hang on to the present that you have. And I think one of the things about folk horror that makes it so frightening is that all of the people you know, as you said, you know, out in the sticks kind of who are living this kind of ancient pre-Christian lifestyle that is kind of untouched by the rest of the world, they seem so happy. They seem, you know, it's, it's, it is very inviting in a lot of, to a lot of people, you know, how many of, you know, people who grew up in the city or even the suburbs kind of want to get away, they go to the country. And that's definitely true in, in England, in the UK, because so many people live in the big giant cities and then they go to these very small little, you know, cottage towns for their holidays. And so I imagine, you know, there's a lot of connection there for people who would go and see, oh, look at this town full of people who are excited that we're here. We, these, you know, big fancy outsiders, but actually they could be harboring, you know, malicious intent that we don't even know about that's just there to feed their religious sacrifice or whatever. Right. It's like Green Acres, but Eddie Albert and Eva, Eva, <laughs> Eva Gabor get killed in the second episode. Yeah. And, and Hooterville is tough, man. Exactly. And I mean, we really do have an American tradition of this. Children of the Corn would be mm. an example. Maybe Salem's Lot a little bit too. Stephen King is constantly suggesting that, you know, Maine isn't really quite as nice as you think it is. So there's a little bit of that. One movie that we probably should mention, it's a few years old right now, but this d- director is still hot. Robert Eggers is the Witch. Tell us a little bit about The Witch. The Witch is one of my favorite mo- uh, horror movies of the last few years. It's It, it takes a group uh, or a, a small family of English people, people from England, the north of England, and who have moved to New England in the United States to start their new life, and it's not going well. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. We travailed a vast ocean. For what? For what? We must ask thee to be silent. Was it not for the pure and faithful dispensation of the Gospels and the Kingdom of God? No more. We are your judges, and not you ours. I cannot be judged by false Christians, for I have done nothing save preach Christ's true Gospel. Must you continue to dishonor the laws of the Commonwealth and the Church with your prideful conceit? If my conscience sees it fit. Then shall you be banished from this plantation's liberties. And so they leave their community and, and move out into the middle of nowhere and their crops are failing, you know, their livestock is dying and things like that. And they're sort of stuck. And, but they are incredibly, incredibly religious people. And while at the same time, right on the edge of the woods where they live, within the woods, there is this witch, this actual, you know, old timey, haggish, you know, force of evil. It were a wolf stole A witch, a cena in her riding cloak about the wood. Father showed me the tracks. It was a witch. Shh. No. It was a witch, Mercy. You speak a right. Thomason! It was I. Liar. Twas I what stole him. I be the witch of the wood. Liar. Liar. I am. Listen not to a mercy. 
I am that very witch. When I sleep, my spirit slips away from my body and dances naked with the devil. What I think is really amazing about that movie is that kind of subtly throughout, because the family is so religious, so Christian, they end up falling victim to the seven deadly sins in different ways. So you have like the, the adolescent son who has nobody else around except his own family. And so he starts to kind of have lustful gaze toward his own older sister. And then, of course, he is taken by the witch in the form of this like comely younger woman. And then you have the mother who is envious of that same older oldest daughter because she is young and beautiful and has her whole life ahead of her and everything like that. And then you have the father who is, you know, exceedingly prideful, w refuses to admit defeat and will not go back to or, or even it will not even admit that his crops are, you know, dying and it just spends all time all day cutting wood that for no reason. And so it's the family unit is breaking down because of all of their succumbing to these sins. And then the witch and kind of evil show up. I think that movie is tremendous and it's so kind of underplayed a lot of the time, but it really feels, you know, oddly realistic in a lot of ways, which is kind of the hallmark of the, the kind of new breed of horror movie that studios like A24, which put out the witch and hereditary and midsummer are known for. Right. And do they speak in early modern English? In, in the movie? They do. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's hard to get a handle on it because they speak in like these and thous and all the things from the 1600s, but they are from the North of England, which is a, an area with a very thick accent. So it does take a little while. It's kind of like Shakespeare almost. He had disappeared. Not one week passed. Yet you and mother utter not his name. He's gone. Caleb. Tell me. Tell thee what? Is he an L? Caleb. Mother will not stop her prayer. And if I died, if I died this day... What is this? I ought even in me heart. Me sins are not pardoned. Thou art younger yet. And if God will not hear my prayer... Caleb! Tell me! It takes a little while for our, you know, bad-speaking American ears to, to get into it. But once you do, I think the, you know, it really adds to the the heightened realism of that story. Right. And increasingly at workplaces, they're having, you know, international speak like an early modern English pagan. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and it's really catching on. So I think there's just going to be more familiarity that, with that, of that way of talking. All right. Well, listen, this is fascinating stuff. Also terrifying. Kyle Anderson, senior editor and film critic for Nerdist. And he's now going to be murdered by Druids. But it was nice having a final conversation with you, Kyle. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Colin. I All appreciate right. it. We are going to take a break. Maybe this is a good time to say that uh, Jonathan McPants is the person who produced today's show with the assistance of absolutely no one and that tomorrow is the nose and we're going to be talking about The Watchmen and it's John Dankosky's last appearance on the Colin McEnroe show and on WNPR and perhaps he will be raptured out of here right then and nobody will ever see him again. I can't guarantee that but tune in tomorrow. Alright, let's take a break and we'll come back with Scary Endorsements. The part of Bill Curry on today's show was played by Count Floyd, and we have a party coming up. It's the 10th anniversary party for The Colin McEnroe Show, Wednesday, November 13th at Black Eyed Sally's. You are invited, but you do have to buy a ticket, so you go to WNPR.org. Right there on the homepage, you'll see a picture of me, and that's where you get your tickets. It'll click right through. Okay, time for some endorsements by our wonderful producers, not just our producers. 
but any producer who happens to be hanging around the newsroom and who can be impressed into duty. Let's start with Carmen Baskoff, who produces Where We Live. So I'm endorsing the television show, What We Do in the Shadows, which is actually based off of the movie, What We Do in the Shadows. So that was a mockumentary by Taika Waititi of Thor Ragnarok and Jemaine Clement of Flight of the Concords. And the two of them in that movie star as vampire roommates living in New Zealand. The point is, Deacon, that you have not done the dishes for five years. Vladislav is right. It's unacceptable to have so many bloody dishes all over this bench like this. I'm so embarrassed when people come over here. Well, what does it matter? You bring them over, you kill them! Vampires don't do dishes. So... The television show of What We Do in the Shadows came out this year. This time, we're focused on a group of vampire roommates living in Staten Island. Well, right now, you should rule this. This. Um, what is this place again? Staten Island. This Staten Island. Is this Staten Island the seat of power in the new world? It is where the boat dropped us off. One of the things I like about this version of the story is that we get a female vampire for the first time and also a number of other female characters, which was one of the things I think was missing from the original film. This show takes all of the great humor and fun mockumentary style of the movie and sharpens it up a bit with, I think, a bit of a higher production value. So it's a little less shaky cam and a little more like spooky Wes Anderson. There are great plot lines in the show on topics from LARPing to municipal government, but what I really love about the show is just how silly it is. Sometimes it's really smart TV, but often it's just really funny TV. So go ahead and watch it yourself. The show airs on FX, and I believe it has a new season scheduled for 2020. But in the meantime, all of season one is available now on Hulu. From LARPing to municipal government, what will vampires get up to next? All right, this is the one that I wait for. It's always the outlier. Let's just say that she marches to the beat of her own drummer, our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan. So this is a twist on spooky endorsements. I'm not endorsing a movie, a video game, a TV show, or a book. I'm endorsing headlamps. I realized this week that without knowing it, I've become a spooky character to the school kids in my neighborhood. I take my early morning walk at the same time they wait for the school bus. I walk the same time every day, all year long. But it's been dark the past few weeks. Normally the kids don't notice me, especially in the dark. A week or so ago, Keith told me I should bring a light with me so I don't trip or get hit by a car. So I pulled out our headlamp. Keith bought it for me when I used to walk our dog at night. It's really nice. It's got an elastic band that fits over my forehead. It's bright red, and it's got three settings, low, medium, high. I usually keep it on low because it saves the battery. The thing with the low setting is it casts an eerie glow that distorts in the drizzle. So when it drizzled on Tuesday morning, I noticed the kids staring at me. And as I got closer, they still stared. I'd like to believe they were spooked. So I guess on this Halloween night, I'm endorsing my headlamp. Okay, I think it's a safe bet that they were spooked, you know, coming through the mist, some murky figure with this cyclopean headlamp. Having said that, I really like headlamps, and it is great if you have a dog. We have a new dog, Declan, and when you walk the dog with the headlamp, your hands are free to pick up poop. In a bag, I mean. Okay. Actually, as Betsy Kaplan endorsements go, that one was, I think, relatively safe. Now it's time for an endorsement from Carlos Mejia, who is WNPR's digital producer, at least for now. I don't know. He told us he doesn't like us anymore and he doesn't want to talk to us anymore. But I don't think he means it. I mean, he just did this endorsement. I want to endorse The Shining. 
I'm not a diehard Stephen King fan, and I'm not even a Stanley Kubrick fanatic. It's just that The Shining is the only movie that genuinely scares me. The blood falling out of the elevators, the creepy old lady in room 237, the terrifying hallway twins, that stuff is great, and it adds to the mounting tense fear that this movie builds on, but to me, the most terrifying scene are none of the iconic parts that I just mentioned. It's the scene where Wendy is running around the hotel room with a huge knife looking for Danny, and she goes up a small flight of stairs, she looks down a hallway, and she sees inside of a hotel room and inside the room it's a person in a bear costume and well a man in a tuxedo laying on a bed i don't know if it's the randomness of the scene or maybe just a combination of the music the creepy bear mask or the dramatic zoom but that moment is just so weird and it scares me Every single time I know it's coming and it gives me goosebumps. So I want to endorse the scariest movie I've ever seen. And really just a great, great movie, The Shining. Okay, that was either Carlos Mejia or Seth Rogen. Not sure which. I do know that the Terrifying Hallway Twins, they put out three albums and they now have a talk show. I think it's on CW, but check that for me. Okay, it's time for Coach Tularski. That's Katie Tularski, Coach T, the senior director or something like that, of all of Connecticut Public Radio. (laughs) When I was a kid, I had a cassette tape that provided the soundtrack to Halloween every year. Every sound that you'd associate with spookiness, like haunted houses, witches, ghouls. <laughs> Halloween, we'd play it when we got ready to go trick-or-treating, and my mom played it while she handed out candy. <laughs> if you were a 90s kid, this was the soundtrack to Halloween. I looked it up on YouTube, and what do you know, there are multiple videos that provide audio from those cassette tapes. Sure, you could just look up spooky sound effects on Spotify, but it's not going to top this vintage greatness. You're finished now, Dracula! No! So let this be the soundtrack to your Halloween. Look up Halloween Howls on YouTube and have a spooky day. I cannot help but think that Katie Tularski's two young children have years of psychotherapy ahead of them. All right, final endorsement comes from who else? Kyone Wolf, who is the technical producer of this show and others, and of course, our announcer. You know what sound makes my hair stand up? What sound catches my breath? That's right, Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Ever since I was a little kid... Whenever the song came on my father's record player, I would feel fear. My shoulders would tighten and white-hot dread would perforate my skull. Why was this song so scary? Was it that otherworldly bass line? Was it Lou Reed's deep voice sounding at the same time aloof and in control, telling me where he thinks I should go? Was it the ladies singing doot 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 sounding tense? 
Like they had guns to their head? Was it the trembling strings never resolving? I don't know. I just remember hearing it and feeling scared and then remembering that memory and feeling scared and remembering that memory and remembering that memory. Tense, never resolving. So when I finally bought a double bass, what was the first song I learned? That's right, this one. I figured if I made new memories of this scary song, it might not be so powerful. And it worked. But it still makes my hair stand up a little when I play it. You know, when she says that, I sort of see what she means, or I hear what she means anyway. All right, I'm going to do a quiz really fast. I'm going to give you a clue, and you yell out the first thing that pops into your head, right? Okay, classic horror scary movie in which Bill Curry appears as an extra in a crowd scene. Go! All right, if you yelled out The Exorcist, that is the correct answer. Bill Curry is a Georgetown College student, was an extra in The Exorcist in a crowd scene. So there, we're going to stop right now. Be careful out there. It is Halloween. And remember, ghosts don't really say boo. That's just a cultural stereotype. <laughs>